0: Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, in chapter 4, verse 32. Acts, chapter 4, verse 32. And again, we, uh, we wish all of our moms a happy Mother's Day today. It is good that we can be together to worship and praise the Lord as a family. And uh, I would say that this morning's message, while not a Mother's Day message, is definitely a message that can help our parents to understand the importance of respect and maintaining respect. In fact, I'll tell you a little story. There was a, there was a very strict father who was a very, very, uh, very much a disciplinarian, and uh, there was a guest at the home who watched as the father took the children aside and was very, very severe in his discipline and uh, very, very stern. And uh, after the children went to bed, the guest said, You know, don't you want your children to love you? And the father said, Yes, I want them to love me, but I need them to respect me. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you in advance for the message you have for us. We ask now as we open your word that you would speak to our hearts and encourage us and comfort us and direct us and give us the understanding we need as it relates to respect and especially the fear of the Lord. Lord, we need to have that respect and that reverence for you if we're going to have a relationship with you or be used by you in any way or impact others in the correct way, in the appropriate way. So now, Lord, we commit to you our time. We ask as we open your word that you would be blessed, that we would be blessed, and that we would receive your wisdom, knowledge, and understanding by the Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to see two things today. One is the setup for the other. First, we're going to see that the church generously provided for those who were in need. A wonderful testimony. In fact, let's read this first section here, chapter 4, in verse 32 to the end of the chapter. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. We're here now introduced to Barnabas, but he's just one example of what was happening in the church at that time. As I said, the church was generously providing for those who were in need. A very wonderful and and, and fantastic testimony for a church to meet the needs of those in their community, but especially within the church family. Now, I find it interesting. One of the things I'm really encouraged by is verse 34. There were no needy persons among them. That really should be, at least as a local church, as a church family, that really should be our testimony. Now, we can't take care of every need in the universe, certainly not, but God works through our church families and our local churches to meet the needs of those that are part of our church family. And we're often able to meet the needs of others outside of our church family. But at a minimum, is it fair to say that those within the church family can be described in this way in a local church? Is it fair to say verse 34 should be true, that there were no needy persons among them? I think that's a wonderful, wonderful testimony, and I also think it's an aspiration. I think it's something that we, as a church, continually strive to see in our church family. I I think it's something we often see in our church family. I'm not saying that there aren't uh, areas we can grow in, we certainly can, but I know as the pastor of this church that oftentimes we receive, and I've mentioned this before, a little envelope in the back in of the offering box and someone will put a check in there and they'll say for the Smith family, the Jones family, or for an individual that's going through a difficult time. It happens more frequently than not. And I've seen it over and over again, which shows me that we as a church, filled with God's Holy Spirit, are fulfilling that command and that example in this portion of Scripture. I think it's wonderful, and I commend you. This is not one of those messages where the pastor has to get up and encourage you to do something because you're already doing it. But I think it's a wonderful testimony and one to continue to strive to maintain. But the church fellowship accomplished this by sharing everything they had with one another. Sharing what they had with one another. All of them were united in their passion for the Lord and in their purpose to serve one another. And because of this, there were no needs that went unmet. You see, I believe that God allows needs in our lives so that others can meet those needs. By the power of the Spirit, God meets our needs through others. It's an interdependence that God desires within the church. But it requires two things. One person with the need has to make that need known. Because we are are not all mind readers, although I will be honest, there are times where someone uh, gets a sense that there's a need, and they may approach that person or approach our leadership team, and then we'll approach the person, and then we can meet the need. But it would be a whole lot easier... If someone who had need, at least let us know to pray. Because in letting us know to pray, not only can we pray that God will meet the need, but then God will meet the need through prayer, amen? And not just praying, but actually, perhaps, giving or supplying that need as we see in this text. You know, uh, recently we had the opportunity to pray for some sisters in the church, and within a very short period of time, I received an email from one of the sisters saying that, We prayed for healing and God healed her. And that's a really great testimony. So sometimes it's a a financial need, but sometimes it's a physical need. Whatever the need is, this is how God desires to meet our needs in the body of Christ and through the body of Christ. Now, none of them saw their possessions as belonging only to themselves, but rather to the entire community. Now, I know this may sound very socialistic or maybe even communistic to some of you, But the difference between socialism and communism is a government comes in and takes away your wealth and decides to redistribute it to others against your will. That is not what we're talking about. In fact, I would go so far as to say that in a community or culture where people willingly and voluntarily meet the needs of others, there need not be a large federal or central government. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't you like it? Just think about it as a Christian for a minute. Just think about it this way. And think about it on a local level. Think about all the money you pay in taxes. And I'm not just talking about property taxes or federal income taxes or state income taxes. Take sales taxes. Any other taxes on on, on goods and gasoline. Take all the taxes. Your FICA taxes. You know, when I first started working, I saw FICA. I never knew what that word meant. I need to come up with an acronym that basically means the government steals my money, but okay. So I look at this and, and, and I think to myself, imagine if we had that pool of money. So let's just say, let's just say, on average, that money works out to be between ten dollars and $20,000 a year. Let's just say. For some it might be, for some it may be more, some may, maybe may less. But if that were the case, imagine if as a Christian... You were empowered to take that money and to invest that in the lives of others. How many needs could we met in the name of Christ? How many needs could we have met or, or meet? So, so when I look at it that way, I think, boy, that would be a better system. Now, unfortunately, not all of the world, and in, a, in our culture, certainly this is true, are Christians. And isn't it amazing that those that promote a form of socialism oftentimes are the stingiest people in the world? But you know what? If we were able to meet the needs of others in this way with those resources, the government, well, we could shrink it a lot, couldn't we? And I'm not trying to get political. I'm just making a point. Big government steps in when, I believe, people of good conscience and Christian moral character don't do what God has called them to do. But let's put that aside for a minute. You shouldn't look at your possessions or your wealth as strictly your own. Yes, God has given it to you. You are called to be a steward, and so you make an investment. Not just one investment, but many investments. Investments in the lives of others, your family. Investments in the lives of your church. Investments in missions. Outreach, local outreach. And as a church, you need to know that we make many investments in both local outreach ministry and overseas missions ministry and supporting missionaries, full-time missionaries. We do that as a church. So already, by supporting this ministry, that's happening with the money that you donate or give to the cause of Christ here at this church. But I want to encourage you to go further in the sense that if you see a need around you, you can do this a number of ways, but you can come to the church, like many do, and say, I'd like to meet that need. And we do that. And even if you see a need outside the church... And you come to us, we'll talk about it and and, and we'll facilitate that as well. Now, that's one thing we need to do. The other thing we need to do is when we see an opportunity to meet a need, rather than just going through the church, you may actually be empowered by Christ to meet that need directly. Now, in the case of Barnabas, he did this through the ministry, through the early church but don't wait for the church to meet a need. Don't don't say, well, I'll talk to Pastor Tim or one of the elders on on Sunday if on Monday someone has a need. You with me? So this is what the church was doing. This was such a big part of their ministry. None of them saw their possessions as belonging only to themselves, but rather to the entire church family and community. And so something else we're told in verse 33. It just kind of sneaking in there. It says, with great power... The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Now that was facilitated by the giving, because that facilitated the opportunity for the apostles to be ministering, because they didn't have to be concerned about other things. They were able to meet the needs of those in the church family. Their own needs were met, and they were able to dedicate and commit themselves to preaching the gospel. So you see how that works. When you, when you support a ministry, you should be supporting outreach and the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of God's word. You really shouldn't be supporting all that much more than that. Now, of course, the rent has to be paid and people need salaries and those things are true. But if that's all the church exists for, to pay the rent on a building, to make improvements, and to pay salaries, we should close. Because we should be doing the great commission work that God has called us to do. So if the church is making good investments, you see, I get very concerned when I see churches that are built like palaces, because, you know, see, I'm a little cheap with God's money. I think, well, that cost money, and that cost money, and that cost money. Maybe that money could have been better invested in the kingdom of God rather than the kingdoms of this earth or the empires of certain ministers. So we are frugal with God's money, so that we can take that money and invest it in the kingdom. Now, there's a difference between being frugal and being too cheap. You know, you need to fix things, you need to maintain buildings, those things need to happen. But I think there's this balance, and God has to give you wisdom to make a balance so that you meet all the needs of the congregation, but that what you're doing is all about supporting the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of God's word, So when you look at the percentages, of course salaries and rent are big percentages. But aside from that, are we effectively... Reaching our community and encouraging our body as a church family. Those are the questions you need to ask. And I think you, you all know this. Uh, we don't really talk about giving. We don't have to. You guys are really faithful to give. So we, we never have and we never will. But I will say this. If you're interested in where the money goes, send me an email. I will forward you our, our annual statement that breaks it down to the penny, including my salary, including what the rent is, including all of these subcategories. In fact, I do the bookkeeping, not the recording of receipts and donations, but I do the bookkeeping on expenditures, and I'll tell you right now, I'm always disappointed at the end of the year when I put a stack of them on the back table and nobody takes them. I appreciate that you guys trust us, but listen, if you want that information and you like looking at, at annual statements, or maybe you don't, but uh, you know that we make that available. Why? We want to be fully accountable. And we want to make the investments, as, as, as you support this ministry, are in agreement with. So many times people will come and say, you know, I notice we're not supporting, uh, and we are, but le- we're not supporting uh, a pro-life ministry. Now we support several. But it, it, if that were the case, then we could make adjustments and start to do that. And over the years we have, and we now do, to, to a pretty significant amount. So I'm just saying this because... What happened here was fostered by the fact that people were led of the Spirit, but also that the apostles were doing what they were supposed to be doing with the resources. I think many ministries waste money. I got to be honest. I get a little concerned when I receive these color flyers in the, uh, in the mail. And I, I know they probably produce like thousands of them. I got to be honest. I know what it costs because I buy the cartridges. I know you get it a little cheaper when you have them done on a larger scale, but I think this costs money, and maybe, maybe I'm like Ebenezer Scrooge, but there are some things we just don't need to spend money on, okay, so that we can spend money on meeting the needs of our church family and beyond. Okay, I'm done with that. When I look at this, I learned something about the early church. The apostles continued to preach the gospel and to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ with great power. By the way, this was a direct answer to their prayers, to speak the word of God with great boldness. We saw it last week in verse 29. So God answered that prayer. This was also an answer to their prayers to heal and perform miracles through the name of Jesus. That was in verse uh, 30 last week. So they prayed these prayers. The room was shaken. The spirit filled them. And God answered prayer. The abundant grace of God, we're told, was upon each and every one of them, not just the apostles. Now, occasionally, this is how this worked out. Because, realize that very wealthy people in any culture at any time, oftentimes have large real estate holdings. In fact, if you make pretty good money, you might have to buy, for tax reasons, you may have to buy rental properties or other buildings or commercial buildings, or give it to the government. Those are your choices. Just the way the tax codes are written. And so if you have a choice to take, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, if you're that wealthy, and, and just give it to the government, or put it in property so you can actually keep it, what's smarter, right? Well, at that time, most of the wealth that people had was tied up in property. Uh, it's a different system, uh, much more, I guess, like the UK, a lot of the wealthy people are landowners, okay? We're not quite like the UK, but let's be honest, wealthy people own a lot of property, So what would happen in the ancient world, people didn't have like cash, you know what I mean, that they could just get to. So if they did want to take of their wealth, selling a piece of property accomplished two things. It provided cash, it provided money to be able to give, and it also offloaded a liability. So because, have you figured this out? The more you own, the more liability you have, right? The more the more you possess, the more responsibility there is to possess it, right? You get a new car, and then your insurance goes up. You buy a new home, your taxes go up, you know, maintenance, all these things. So to bring life to a place where they were simply meeting the needs of others and having their own needs met, many people would occasionally, who who own property, would sell it, give the money to the apostles to provide for the needy. Now, their generosity ensured that there were no needy persons within the church fellowship. But brothers and sisters, there was no obligation For them to give, this was a free will offering. By the way, you've heard me say this. Tithing was an Old Testament requirement. It was compulsory. It wasn't optional. So when Christian ministers today talk to you about tithes and offerings, they're correct on offerings but not on tithes. Tithes literally mean a tenth. If you give 11%, you can't tithe. It means a tenth. It was a tax, if you will, and it was required under the Old Covenant. So if you're going to go there, you might as well stop eating shrimp and pork and everything else because at the end of the day, we are given the ability to give. We've given the grace of giving, not the law that requires us to tithe. However, if you're looking for a guideline, it's between you and the Lord, but a lot of people start with 10%. But that's not the point. Tithing is not a New Testament concept. It's not talked about as being a New Testament concept. When it's mentioned in the New Testament, it's reflecting back on the Old Covenant. So don't let anybody tell you that you're under any obligation to tithe at this church or anywhere else. In fact, you're not really called to tithe at all. You're called to give as the Lord leads free of your own will. Just your own will, whatever God lays on your heart to give. Paul talks about that, right? 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he's decided in his own heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That was one of my memory verses. Why? So I would always understand that we have an opportunity to give, not a responsibility to tithe. Okay, that gives us a great perspective. And by the way, when you put a box in the back, which we've always done since day one, and you don't pass a plate, and people give according to the Lord's leading, you always have more than you need. Just saying. It's always been true, and it always will be. Because we rely on the Spirit leading others to give, not on my ability to be a salesman or to beg for money, which will never happen. Okay, I'm done with that. I thought I was done, but now I'm really done. Okay, so (laughs) they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They had received the gift of giving. It's a spiritual gift. You know how you know it's a spiritual gift? You get to give, you don't got to. You look forward to the opportunity to give because God's Spirit is leading you. They were blessed by the Lord with their wealth and inspired to give out of their abundance. And they trusted, this is so important, they trusted the apostles would faithfully distribute these funds to those that had legitimate needs. I'm going to say this, if you can't trust a ministry or church to do that exact thing, distribute funds to those who have legitimate needs, don't give. Can I say that? Am I going to get in trouble? Please don't give to a ministry that you have no confidence in, there's no transparency. No accountability? Why would you do that? It's like putting money in a hole. You don't know where it's going. And if they're not responsible, speak to them about being responsible. And if they refuse to listen, don't give. Find another ministry that is responsible to give to. They knew the apostles were going to do what they said, and so they were confident. They trusted the apostles, the leaders of that church, to do as they were called to do. And so they did what they were called to do. Now, Barnabas sells a field, gives the money to the apostles to provide for the needy. We're just giving this one example because we're introduced to Barnabas later on. He was a very wealthy man. He was a Levite who who lived on the island of Cyprus off the coast of Israel in the Mediterranean Sea. His real name was Joseph, but the apostles nicknamed him the son of encouragement. I, I often think of certain individuals... When I think of those who are encouragers, I think of Eddie Mack. We need to nickname him Barnabas, the son of encouragement. You know, it, It's like he's just born of encouragement, because every time I talk to that wonderful man, I am encouraged. It is a wonderful... I'm not going to do, do an Eddie impersonation, no. I'll, I'll, Russ can do that later, that's his dad, if he chooses to, but... Imitation's a high form of flattery, but I'm not going there today. But we love Eddie and Cheryl, and we miss them. But you know what? What an encourager, right? I think of people who have that gift. Many of you have that gift. I'm just using one example. Here we have one example it's Barnabas. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, he had received the gift of giving and encouragement. What a wonderful combination. These are spiritual gifts talked about in the book of Romans, chapter 12. And he trusted that the apostles would faithfully distribute these funds to those who had legitimate needs. And so he gave generously. Generously. Okay. Remember what I said about the importance of respect as we opened our service? I talked about how love is wonderful, but respect is essential. We call respect in the Bible the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. It's what leaders in the church should have. What should motivate them to be accountable and make the appropriate investment of funds in meeting the needs of others? It should be. It's not always there. We're now given an example of two individuals who had no fear. No fear of the Lord. They didn't respect what God was doing. They apparently had no respect for themselves or anyone else. And what they did, and I'm not saying they weren't Christians, and I'm not saying they were Christians, I don't know. They probably were because we're saved by grace through faith. Amen? But what they did showed a total lack of fear and reverence for God. Let's read. Let's look, let's first look at the first two verses in chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property, just like Barnabas. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, what's going on here? They were under no obligation to do this. What is really going on here? As we go through this account, you'll see that they were doing this for show. They were doing this for the wrong reason. Ananias sold property that he owned and gave the money to the apostles, again, to provide for the needy. Now, he and his wife, Sapphira, agreed. Together conspired to keep a portion of the funds for themselves, but they didn't tell anybody that It wasn't like they said we're giving 80% of what we sold it for They said oh, we're giving all the money to the poor, but then they kept back a portion I commend them because they followed the good example of others who had donated the value of their property to others That that's a good thing. It's not like what they did was bad But they were deceitful There is no room for lying and deceit in the church. The devil was the first liar. And when you let lies and deceit into the church family, you're basically opening up the door, inviting the devil to come in for coffee hour. Sit down and have a cup of coffee with the devil. Why would you do that? That's the surefire way to destroy the work of God in our lives the desire that they had to give may not have been motivated by the Holy Spirit. In fact, I don't think it was. Again, they're deceitful about the amount of money that they received for the sale of the property. So how could this be a spirit-led giving? Now, what may have happened, I don't know. They may have given reluctantly or out of compulsion in order to appear generous to others. I remember Pastor Chuck The late Pastor Chuck used to say this. He says, if you don't want to give it, don't give it at all. If you don't want to give, don't. I've said that for years. We don't want one penny, one dollar, that isn't motivated by the Spirit of God. Because if you're thinking afterwards, ooh, I was a little too generous, you know what? Don't. That's not a work of the Spirit. That's a work of the flesh or something ugly like guilt or shame or who knows what. We want to be fearful of the Lord. We want to live in a way that honors Him. We want to be reverential and respectful in the way we handle ourselves in the church. Now, another thing, they may not have completely trusted God. They may not have trusted God in their giving, or they may have been overcome by greed. I, I think it was probably greed. But sometimes people will give, and the reason they're reluctant is because they're not trusting God. Now, you don't give irresponsibly. You don't take the money you have for the rent and give it to a ministry or to an individual at a church and then get thrown out of your apartment. You don't do that, right? These people had an abundance, and yet something went wrong in their hearts. I do think they trusted the apostles in the sense that they knew that they would distribute the funds to those that had legitimate needs, but they gave for the wrong reasons and they did so deceitfully. And so here's what happens next. And this may disturb you. Parental guidance suggested. Verse 3, Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land. Didn't it all belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? That is, you could do whatever you want with it. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear or reverence seized all who heard what had happened. And then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Wow. When I first read that, I, I couldn't even believe it. Could that be true? Would-, would God do something like that? Remember, God wants us to love him, but we need to fear him. I think this is a really terrible situation. I think it was tragic. I believe it was tragic for sure. But Peter exposed Ananias' deception about the money that they had received for the sale of the property. It was the lie. It was the lying, the deception that was the problem, not the giving or the amount that he gave or the percentage of the sale of the property. Peter's not saying he wants more money. He wants this man to live in the fear of the Lord. And imagine what would have happened if this was allowed to continue. Peter knew that Adonaius had done this, and he rebuked him for lying to the Holy Spirit. Now, you can't lie to the Holy Spirit. You can't lie to God. And so God must have informed and given Peter a word of knowledge, another gift of the Spirit, so that he knew what had happened. How he found out? Maybe he found out through other channels. But more than likely, God spoke to this man and told him, What was going on? Now, Ananias' actions clearly, according to Peter, had been inspired by Satan, the devil. You understand that? The father of lies, according to Jesus in John's gospel. Peter was filled with the spirit. He had received this gift of knowledge. He called him out. And some of you think my sermons are tough. My goodness, can you imagine this kind of rebuke and the result of it? Peter asked him what made him think of lying, not only to men, but to God. Listen, again, the land belonged to him before he sold it. He wasn't obligated to sell it. And the money belonged to him after he sold the land. He wasn't required to give it away or a certain percentage or anything. He wasn't required to do any of this. Why was he doing this? The devil made him do it. Quoting Flip Wilson, for those of you who are old like me. The devil made him do it do it. But you know what? The devil can't make you do something, really. You have to be willing as well. They saw what happened to Judas. That ended tragically. But Ananias and Sapphira is extremely tragic as well. We'll see what happens to her. Ananias fell down and died after Peter revealed that he had lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, some have suggested, well, he was so shocked that, you know, they outed him that, no, 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 no. I think he was struck down by the hand of the Lord. I don't think there's any question about that. I don't think it's a coincidence that at that very moment he fell down and died. Peter's rebuke caused Ananias to immediately collapse and stop breathing. Very definition of dying or dropping dead, if you will. Peter was filled with the spirit. He had also, in addition to having received the gift of knowledge, apparently had another gift, which we talk about miraculous powers. That is, God does something miraculous through you. More often than not, it's something wonderful. But sometimes it's something like this that ends in a tragedy. Now, why did God do this? Why did God? Well, we know why God did this. He was maintaining purity in the church. When we get to next week's study, you'll see how important it is to have a pure church and what the, what the results and the response of people is to a pure church. But this was a turning point. This was a moment the church could have went south. Everything could have went in the wrong direction. And so God preserved the purity of the church. Oh, that he would continue to do so today. The church would be a lot more powerful if it was purged of the Ananias and Sapphira's in our midst. So, Ananias' death, we're told, caused great fear, that is reverence and respect, to seize all who heard about what happened. Nobody was going to try this one again. Can you imagine if the consequences to something like this were so severe and immediate? Unfortunately, I say unfortunately because today they're not. People steal from the church all the time. People, People play games all the time in the church. And pastors and ministers do this. Wouldn't it be something if... Someone stood up one day, you know, one of these televangelists are up there with their million-dollar bank accounts and all their toys and everything they waste money on. They got to answer to God about And they got up and they started asking for money. And somebody just stood up and said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And they fell down and dropped dead. You wouldn't hire that guy to come to your party, would you? Can you imagine? Who's that? Oh, Oh, I'm leaving. Nobody likes to be around somebody like that, but Peter was given an incredible position in the church, and if he hadn't acted as God authorized him and empowered him to act at this point, I don't know whether we would be here today. In fact, we probably wouldn't. The young men come, they carry out Ananias' body, and they bury him, and then we see what happens in verse 7. About three hours. Now, that's amazing. About three hours. I, I was like, where was she? I don't know, it's just me. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me. I love this because he gives her the opportunity to come clean. And I really believe that he was giving Ananias the opportunity as well. But tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about it and all who heard about these events. Now, they're not going to tell you that account at a church growth seminar. Isn't it amazing? We're so obsessed. More, more people, more children, more, more everything in the church. We, we're, we're striving for more. You know, the truth is, the Lord will add to the church. The Lord will subtract from the church. The Lord will multiply the church, but he will never divide the church. That's like like a little math thing, because I'm a geek. But you know what? I tell you, when something is going to divide the church, it's never, ever, ever God. That's what was about to happen here. And so the Lord lovingly, faithfully subtracted from the church. Can I just give you a little hint as to what I think is going on in the church in America today? I believe over the last year, God has done a lot of subtracting from the church. Now, some people aren't with us and would like to be with us. I'm not talking about them. I'm not. But I've read the stats that you've read, how church attendance is down, how now less than 50% in America actually attend church. But you know what? I think if you look at the percentage of Christians that attend church, you're going to see the numbers very high. I think a lot of people that attended church in the past, and I'm not judging their hearts, but I wonder if you could be so easily dissuaded from being a member of a church and worshiping God, were you really a Christian? I can't answer that question. I'm not judging anyone. And please listen to me. I'm not saying to people who are uncomfortable being here for health reasons or other reasons who couldn't be here or taking care of someone who had health reasons are not Christians. That's not what I'm saying. But when you look at the overwhelming numbers in the church, the church has been whittled down. Far fewer people attend church today than they did a little over a year ago. Now, what is God doing? Oh, all, all is lost. No, 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 no. Sometimes God subtracts because subtracting those that are not really sincere from the body of Christ Purifies the church. Or have you forgotten about separating the wheat and the chaff? This has to happen every so often. God has to take people out of the church family who don't belong here. I want everyone here, I don't want anyone to leave. But if you're lying to the Holy Spirit, please go before something worse happens to you. My heart is for people. But my heart is first for God. And if we're going to love people but not fear God, we got no business being here today. Remember the two great commandments love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. You have to have a healthy reverence and respect for God. For a while there, we got a little too casual, I think, in the church. There are a lot of ministries popping up, and I appreciate that they want to make it really comfortable, and I'm okay with comfortable. Did you see me in a suit and tie? I'm okay. I like suit and ties. I actually look pretty good in a suit and tie. When I do a memorial service or a wedding, you'll find out. Unless the memorial service is for you. Sorry. I'm comfortable. Are you comfortable? We're comfortable here. You know, comfortable's okay. But you know, you're coming in your pajamas and your slippers, which is Starbucks. Put your feet up on it. The... Whoa, 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 whoa. We're in the house of the Lord, okay? There's a line. And I think some ministries forgot that. One of the reasons I very much enjoy our sanctuary, because I was a kid that grew up in a church with a sanctuary. I was Episcopalian. My father's family was Roman Catholic, my mom Episcopalian, so we went to the Episcopal Church. And it was very much like this, very similar actually, in terms of the way it's designed. A Methodist church came out of the Episcopal Church. So when I come into a sanctuary like this, and there's stained glass windows and you don't need these things to worship, when I come into an actual church building, I already am programmed, just because of how I was raised to know, I'm in the house of the Lord, and I can worship in a barn. That doesn't matter. But we need to maintain a healthy respect and reverence for God and not become so overly casual that we forget we're here to worship him. Now, you may disagree with some of what I've said, and that's fine. That's just how I see it. That doesn't mean I'm right. But what we know here is the purity of the church, the early church, was so important that some very, very tragic things had to take place. And unfortunately, some tragic things have taken place in our world as well. But God is still purifying his church through that. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This woman, Sapphira, was given that opportunity. And she lied. She lied. So here's what happened. He gave her that opportunity. He knew what they had done, but Peter gave her that opportunity to, to tell the truth. And Peter asked her to confirm the price that she and Ananias had received for the sale of the land. He wanted dollars and cents. She had come to see Peter a few hours later, not knowing what had happened. You, you might have thought she might have recanted, but she didn't. She lied to Peter about the amount of money that they had received for the sale of the land. And then Peter asked her an interesting question, because Ananias was the author of this lie, or Satan was working through Ananias to do this. But Sapphira's sin was a little different. She just kind of kept her mouth shut and conspired. Now, here's to the two ways that you can lie. You can lie by telling something that isn't true, and you can lie by not telling the truth. Are you with me? You can lie by saying something that isn't true, a lie, or you can lie by not telling the truth. That is, if you know the truth and you don't tell it, you're really lying. You're deceiving. And that's what she did. She didn't tell the truth. And then she was asked a direct question, and then she lied. And so... Peter, once again, rebuked her. I mean, my goodness, Sapphira fell down and died after Peter revealed what, that she had lied to the Holy Spirit. And he asked her this question. How could she agree with Ananias to test the Spirit of the Lord? You know, if you test me, I might fail. But if you test the Spirit, he doesn't fail. He never fails. And then Peter told her. He informed her, before she fell down, that Ananias had died and had been buried And that she would die as well. It's the last thing she heard, and then she died. She fell down. She died. And so she suffered the same fate as Ananias because she was complicit in his deception. So, no excuses. Young men came, the same young men came, and they carried Sapphira's body out and buried her next to her husband. Now, I'm just going to challenge you, okay? Not that everybody needs to know your business. But if you're pretending to be somebody you're not, and you're living contrary to the word of God, I'm not going to do what Peter did. That's not who I am. It's not what I'm called to do. I'm called to preach the word. But I am going to warn you, because God can choose to take you out at any moment. He doesn't want to. He doesn't desire to. In fact, a message like this is a great opportunity to get right with Jesus. You got something going on in your life and you know you're living deceitfully? You're telling things to people that aren't true? Or you're not being honest about what's going on when you need to be? And you're not telling the truth about your life, your lifestyle, your relationships, the things you're involved in? Here's a wonderful opportunity to repent and be forgiven. I don't see anybody falling over. So that's good. We have God's grace. God desires to be loving and forgiving with you. But brothers and sisters, as we see here, he wants your respect. He needs your respect. He can't work in your life without you being fearful in that way. See, Ananias and Sapphira's deaths caused great fear to seize all who heard about what had happened. This caused the whole church fellowship to fear God and not to try and deceive one another. Imagine that. I don't think anyone needed to be reminded for a while of this lesson. It caused those outside the church fellowship to fear God and respect the apostles. Hey, you know what? Don't take Peter off. Don't lie. The fear of the Lord, as we know, is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of understanding, according to the Psalms and Proverbs. The fear of the Lord, according to Proverbs 10 and Proverbs 14, adds length to life and is a fountain of life. So it's up to you today to choose life or death. Fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you because... You first loved us. You called us to repentance. You've worked in our hearts and in our lives, and you have uh, done all that is necessary to save us from our sins. You died on the cross. You rose again on the third day. We are sinners in need of salvation, in need of saving, and you, you made a way where there was no way. You are the way, the truth, and the life. You rose again on the third day. You ascended into heaven. You ever lived to make intercession on our behalf and You're coming again to judge the living and the dead. And Lord, we we know that, that we need to walk circumspectly. We need to walk in fear and in reverence of who you are because you desire a church that is both pure and powerful. And Lord God, we ask now for your spirit to fill us. And if there be any way that's wicked in us, like David said, if there be any wicked way in me, lead me to the way of understanding, to the life everlasting, the way everlasting. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Lord, this is what we desire because right now, if we walk out of this place like this message didn't just happen, like driving away from the scene of an accident as if people didn't just die, then we're becoming conditioned and callous to human tragedy. Lord, may we never be so calloused that we accept lying and deceit as an acceptable way to behave as Christians. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness by your mercy and your grace. Be merciful and patient with us. We know that you are compassionate and long-suffering and that you don't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, Lord, in fear and reverence and respect of you and who you are, we cry out, we ask for forgiveness, cleansing of all sin. Purify our hearts from all unrighteousness and help us to walk in a way that is contrary to the deception and the lies that we may have allowed in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Why don't we stand once again?